Well, today, the modern detective, how corporate intelligence is reshaping the world. Stay tuned for Prudent Money. Good afternoon and welcome to the Prudent Money Radio Show. I'm your host, Bob Brooks. Thank you so much for joining me today. You know I do appreciate it. Well, as a private investigator, Tyler Maroney has traveled the globe overseeing sensitive investigations and untying complicated cases for a wide array of clients. In his new book, The Modern Detective, he shows that it is private eyes who today are being called upon to catch corrupt politicians, track down international embezzlers, and mine reams of data to, re- to reveal fraud and deception. Hey, Tyler, welcome to Prudent Money. Bob, thank you for having me on. You know, going through your book, The Modern Detective, really uncovered for me a whole new world that is going on behind the scenes that I never really you know, never really considered. But then again, I got to thinking there's got to be someone, a, a private investigator, navigating the evidence when it comes to corrupt dealings in corporate America or Washington, for that matter. Sure. I mean, that that is the primary role of the private detective, I would argue, is um, being a fact finder. Um, and contrary to the reputation of the private eye, which is often seen as a, um, a rule flouter or someone who kind of operates in the shadows. In fact, it's finding the evidence for a court case or finding the information um, for a business deal um, that helps our clients um, get the deal done or, or navigate a legal dispute. We'll start with a little bit of background about yourself. You were a Fulbright scholar and a journalist. What you know? What led you to change to private investigation work? So I spent ten years as a journalist, and at the at the very end of that, the last year or so, I became really focused on investigative journalism, um, meaning journalism that is designed to uncover hidden information um, and either hidden. Um, for um, nefarious reasons or, or otherwise. And that gave me purpose as a journalist, as opposed to being a generalist, in which I would write one day about diplomacy and the next day about sports, for example. Mm. And by chance, I met somebody who, who works as a private detective. And he told me that there are lots of investigative journalists who go into this field, um, along with law enforcement officers and intelligence operatives and labor union activists and uh, accountants and others. And it really enthralled me, this idea of being able to do investigative work all the time. And so I took a chance and, um, I am still learning 15 years later. What a fascinating (laughs) job it is. Well, you know, it's funny because I think that there's this outdated perception of the business of personal investigation, maybe based on what we watch on TV. You know, in the modern day, you have to be so much more creative and resourceful. And that, which brings me to the subject of technology, Talk about how technology has really changed everything when it comes to PI work. It's changed drastically. And I would argue that if you are a private detective, just like if you are a journalist, if you're not up to date on technological innovation and tools that allow you to find information online that you're going to fall by the wayside. Um, And what this means is um, keeping up on um, what tools are out there, largely around social media, which of course is continuing to grow and expand, um, especially with revelations about privacy restrictions and 
how our information is being sold to advertisers, um, how often we think our information is is somehow restricted and private, and when it is in fact not. And I think understanding where that information lives, um, how it moves, um, and even where it lives when we think we've deleted it really benefits the private detective um, because she can then um, speak with authority to clients about how technology works. You know, I would imagine that uh, technology can also be somewhat of a curse as well, just keeping up with the learning curve. Talk a little bit about some of the challenges with technology. One of the biggest challenges is trying to track the chaos that is disinformation and misinformation online, so false narratives. Um, you know, how often do we really know that a story that we clicked uh, into through a link on Twitter is really taking us to a media source that we trust? And even if it is a media source that we trust, how do we know that the journalist or the author is who he or she claims to be. And even if we know who that author is, how do we know that the information itself um, within the article um, was obtained um, properly? And I, and I make this point because, you know, in the old days, and by which I mean, you know, maybe 20, 25 years ago, we had fewer resources. There were national magazines and newspapers that were considered the authority. But then we had local newspapers that people trusted because maybe they knew the editor and would see him or her around town. Whereas today, um, we don't have local newspapers and the old brands such as Time Magazine, for instance, and Newsweek are a shadow of them, of themselves, of their former selves. And so we often end up chasing information that agrees with our worldview as opposed to information that is credible. You, know, you talked about social media, and de- you know it has its pros and definitely has its cons. How do you go about handling a situation where, you know, say a client comes to you and says, "There's uh, all this false information is damaging my reputation. It's all online. You Google my name, there it comes up." I mean, how do you how do you get rid of that type of thing? Well, we don't, as a firm, engage in what's often called reputation management in the sense that we don't have the skills and the experience to remove content online. We can advise on that, um, largely because that's very hard to do. And I would advise anyone who wants to do that to think about a few things. One is that, and this goes back to my earlier point about understanding technology, is that the way that the Google algorithms work um, mean that if you are able to push down in whatever way you can do so, negative information about yourself into the second or third page of Google results, that doesn't mean it's going to stay that way because the algorithm is constantly changing how it calculates what information should be displayed and where. Um, So unless you're able to contact a site like a legitimate news organization that has simply gotten a story wrong, um, it's going to be difficult uh, to do that. Now, having said that, the big technology companies, Google and Facebook and Twitter, do have um, opportunities and and people who work for them um, that make it their job to help get information um, offline that is not accurate. I mean, I think just today, Facebook removed um, some Instagram accounts that were connected to Roger Stone. 
um, because of information that was put out there that was patently false. And that was a decision that was made by, uh, by Facebook. So I think people do have um, agency and they do have options when information about them or others is wrong that's been put online. This is Bob Brooks, and you are listening to the Prudent Money Radio Show. I'm talking to Tyler Maroney about his book, The Modern Detective, How Corporate Intelligence is Reshaping the World. You know, I know that uh, many have heard the term data mining, and maybe not clear what it is. I mean, define that for us and give us an example how how it's used. Sure. So data mining is the process by which um, we and others take large quantities of data, by which I mean um, a spreadsheet, for instance, um, a CSV file that has millions and millions and millions and millions of data points. Um, And going through that information um, to look for what you need. Um, And one example might be um, pulling down uh, the list of every deed that is filed in a certain county, every homeowner, for example, um, and looking for patterns within that. Um, One example might be looking for a pattern to show that 10% of the homeowners in a certain area um, have mortgages that exceed the value of their home. Um, And this could be done um, painstakingly and manually it would take years probably to do it. But if you have the technological wherewithal to do what I just described, which is relatively simple for people with the right skills, you can mine the information, which seems overwhelming because it's so voluminous for what you need. You know, I would imagine that uh, entities call you in to do work that authorities won't touch or maybe they can't touch. Give us a couple of examples of when this happens. So the most common example of when we are called um, in when law enforcement is not is when a company fears that it is being victimized by one of its own employees. So we call this an internal investigation. Um, We did a case recently in which um, the CFO of a company was allegedly, because we hadn't found any proof, engaged in vendor fraud. So she was setting up companies that had generic names like Main Street 123 and then granting um, contracts to those companies. So if an auditor looked at it, you might not know right away um, that there was any fraud in that, but it was essentially stealing money from her own company. Um, And the reason that we were called and not the FBI, for instance, is that the company didn't know what was really happening. So they couldn't report a crime. We, working with the lawyers of the company, found out that she was, in fact, stealing from the company. And then we partnered with law enforcement because we referred the case to them, to local prosecutors, and presented them with our findings. Um, And at that point, they could take what we found and run with it using the tools that they have that we don't, such as subpoena power. Let's talk a little bit about... uh... The, the times when the economy and the markets are booming and and it seems like that a, a lot of corporate fraud occurs and it kind of goes under the radar because people aren't really paying attention because things are so good. Then when it shifts to a recession, that's when you really start to see corporate fraud come out of the uh, uh, come out of the background. Has that have you seen that this time around? 
It's starting to, yes. Um, I mean, certainly not um, at the melodramatic level that Bernie Madoff represented. Right. I mean, I think right. that may be what you're referring to. Yes. I mean, the, the financial collapse of roughly August and September 2008, and then Bernie Madoff is unmasked. I think it was in December of that year. So mm-hmm. just a couple of months later. And then those two narratives become almost synonymous with themselves. Um, you know, economic collapse and corporate fraud, um, because certainly they're related. Um, and although we have certainly not seen a, a Bernie Madoff yet, there have been lots of rumblings that the fraud is not only being committed, uh, the frauds being committed by, um, you know, corporate interests, but also people who are taking advantage of um, the government. I mean, the, the CARES Act and the PPP loans and right. grants, for instance, there have been examples already that have been brought forward showing that people simply lied on their applications, um, which means stealing money from the government. So I, I think we're seeing just the beginning of that. I don't want to make any predictions because, sure. to be honest, I hope we don't see lots more corporate fraud. But with the increase in technology and the chaos that has been wrought by the pandemic, I, I worry that there will be more. Name of Tyler's book is The Modern Detective, How Corporate Intelligence is Reshaping the World. You know, from your work, you can give a lot of practical tips to protect your personal information. With as much identity theft that is occurring and databases that are being hacked, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that people are still acting as if this is never going to happen to me. They're, you know, ignoring easy-to-follow rules. What would you say to anyone who doesn't take this issue seriously? I would say that the things that you can do are so simple that it's not worth ignoring. Um, excuse me. I would say that they're so simple that you should do them. Here's an example. Um, two-factor authentication is a way of protecting your email and other accounts, such as if you have a Dropbox or a Box account, which means when you log in, a text is sent to your phone, which allows you to verify that it's you. Um, the vast majority of users of these systems do not use that. So if someone accessed your account, you may not be aware of it. Um, Another would be to create passwords that are not obvious. A colleague of mine, Ann Dibel, has written about the security questions that we get, such as, you know, what is your mother's maiden name and what was the name of your first pet? The advice I have is lie, make up answers. So name of your first pet should not be real. It should be... um, Mexico City, or (laughs) your father's maiden name should be uh, Cleveland, for instance. And and the advantage of this is that uh, it not only protects you, but a lot of that information that you think is very private is actually discoverable online using resources like Facebook or Ancestry.com. So even if you think your information is private, it's probably not. Tell me this, how easy is it for a hacker to get into somebody's uh, computer and database while using a public wireless network? Well, I think it depends on what tools the hacker is using. You know, the most common tool is a phishing expedition in which someone is sent an email or a text or some other file that requires them to click on it, um, making them more vulnerable. And so that actually is, I think, what people should be more concerned with than wireless networks, although certainly you should never operate on public wireless networks if possible, um, and only ones that require passwords. Um, 
So to go back to the point about phishing, please make sure that you know the source of an email that's being sent to you. And if you're ever curious, don't click on a link within it. Talk a little bit about antivirus software. I mean, there's a lot of companies who produce it. What are, what are some of the uh, attributes of the type that you really want? That's actually not work that our firm specializes in because that's more preventative, mm -hmm. um, such as um, security work. The work we do is as after the fact. If once there's been a breach, um, we will do work to investigate who is responsible for the breach. So uh, unfortunately, I can't comment on, on that kind of technology. Well, in the book, you, uh, you tell a lot of stories of PI work. Talk about one of the more fascinating cases you've been involved with. Well, the one of the best stories um, from the book is actually not about me, but it's about um, some private detectives that I got to know um, who are based in London. Um, and they were hired by an American bankruptcy trustee, um, which already may start to make um, some of your listeners' eyes roll back, because this is not about bankruptcy law. But what was happening is a very wealthy real estate developer owed hundreds of millions of dollars to creditors, um, and he was also um, worried that he was involved in criminal wrongdoing. So he fled the country uh, in a private jet and ended up in the Swiss Alps. And these private detectives were hired by lawyers through the American trustee to try to find this man, and not only to find him, but to track down his assets. Um, and they used very, very savvy techniques, including some fun ones, including they knew that he had and very much adored his very unique dogs, Shih Tzus. And they suspected that since the dogs were missing from his home, that they were with him. So one of the detectives in talking to me for the case said, only half jokingly, find the dogs and you find <laughs> the man. And so going and interviewing veterinarians in the Swiss Alps, they were able to find this guy oh my gosh. through what is kind of old fashioned shoe leather. A fascinating story. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, this is the last question, uh, talk a little bit about politics. Give us some examples of investigative work going on you know, behind the scenes to gather information that would be a bombshell during the elections. I mean, the traditional what's called oppo work is likely being done. Our firm doesn't do oppo work in which a, you know, a candidate um, puts together information about uh, his or her adversary. Um, but I suspect that right now, you know, with the heated political exchange that we witnessed last <laughs> night um, and the election coming in about a month and the nomination of, uh, you know, a new Supreme Court justice, there is a lot of research being done to try to find out on both sides how to play these angles and not just what to say, but to find new facts that might support support that work. And probably the most famous recent example of political work that I mentioned briefly in my book involves um, what was called the Steele dossier in which an, an investigator found um, what, he, what he suspected was really um, salacious and piddling information about then-candidate President Trump and, uh, and took that information to law enforcement. And we all know what happened with that. Once again, the name of the book is The Modern Detective, How Corporate Intelligence is Reshaping the World. Tyler, great to have you on the program, and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much.
This is Bob Brooks, and you are listening to the Prudent Money Radio Show. Thank you so much for joining me today. The name of that book, once again, is The Modern Detective, How Corporate Intelligence is Reshaping the World. It's just interesting uh, information because it's just such a whole another different world when it comes to uh, private investigation and and the amount of the the amount of corporate fraud the amount of investment fraud is just really uh, it's just hard to believe sometimes uh, what all is going on hey I want to make sure that you know about the webinar that we're doing on October the 8th at 4.45 in the afternoon, I, I wanted to not get into anybody's evening, wanted it late enough in the afternoon. If you're home, you can listen to it, or if you're out and about, you can listen to it on your phone. But it's uh, Investing in Uncertain Times, and this is part of a series we're going to be doing each month going forward, a webinar series called Getting Back to the Basics. Lots of uncertainty, I think that you will agree, and I uh, want to talk about that uncertainty, but this is only a 30-minute webinar. And basically what I want to do, I want to talk globally back to the basics, information that I think that you need to know that's important to understand. And this is such basic information that we a lot of times skim over and we jump into the details. And the details we get so confused and don't understand. We're going to stick right to the basics so that you know what to look for when it comes to uncertainty because there's really two types of uncertainty. There's individual uncertainty, which you can control. And we're going to teach you that, the five basic habits to help you reach your goals. And then there's the consequential uncertainty that you can't control, like the elections, for instance. What do you do and how do you invest going into the elections? And what's the next year look like and what could possibly happen? What's, uh, you know, how do you define risk in that term? And the recession and uh, the pandemic and uh, so much to talk about. But I'm going to keep it very basic. I, I want to express because I think that that's the problem is that we're, as a financial community, we're not keeping things basic, and people just kind of give up if they can't really understand it and, uh, and get a good sense of what's going on. So all you got to do is go to prudentmoney.com. You'll see the banner. Click through, register. Very simple, 445 to 515, and uh, it will be a great use of your time. That's October the 8th, which is a Thursday. And uh, we'll be uh, sharing some information with you that I think that you really do need to know. And it's information that you're going to think is really uh, back to the theme of being basic. But you're going to it's going to make things start to make sense again. And uh, that's exactly what my objective will be so that you can navigate through uh, this period of very uncertain times. This is Bob Brooks. So I just want to make sure that you know about some, inf- some resources on the website at prudentmoney.com. There is a risk survey that you can go take. It's 12 questions long, and this will help tell you, and you've heard me talk about this, this will help tell you what, how you're wired for risk and will help you better identify what makes sense risk-wise for you. And uh, we'll send that to you. There's no, there's no cost to that. That's on the website. And, of course, we do podcast every program, and we put that on SoundCloud. All that you can get to the uh, website. And we, in fact, we've redone the website. Go check it out and let me know what you think. Hey, this is Bob Brooks. If you've got a question for me, go to the website, www.prudentmoney.com. There is a section called the Ask Bob section. Send it in. I will get you taken care of because we are all out of time. Until we do meet again next time, keep the faith and have a great rest of the day.
that's all the time we have for today. Questions or comments for Bob or to find out more great information like what you've just heard, visit www.prudentmoney.com. Be sure to join Bob Brooks again for the next edition of Prudent Money. Prudent Money with Bob Brooks is sponsored by the Prudent Money Foundation on 91.3.